All right, well, welcome everyone. It's great to be with you today. For the seminar, the seminar title is The Israel of God. And uh, my name is Mike Kuhn. I work with World Outreach, some of my World Outreach buddies here to, to my right. All you guys can wave. Uh, the book you received, right? They've already received this book, right? Mark and Mary Jane. The book you received was authored by, can I make this known? Is this a public thing? I already did it, didn't I? Anyway, the book you received is authored by some of my World Outreach colleagues, Mark and Mary Jean, Jane Vanderput to my, right, to my left. So uh, you can have lots of conversations about ministry to Muslims and others right here in this room. Um, my life as a missionary has been lived in the Mediterranean world, Morocco, Egypt, and Beirut. So those are the places I've lived for extensive periods of time. Uh, but I've also traveled in most of the Middle Eastern, Eastern countries, including Israel. Uh, but my missionary call has been to the Arab peoples. And uh, that, will, that will emerge as we, as we talk today. You'll be hearing that from me. And one of the things I want to do is to let you know there, is a, there, is a, um, there are brothers and sisters in the Middle East. Um, you are brothers and sisters who are fiercely committed to Christ and to the truth of his word just as you are. And so today I've asked one of them to lead us in prayer. Actually, I didn't ask him personally. I just downloaded his YouTube. So um, I'm going to hope that this works well. And in just one moment, you'll be hearing from Dr. Johanna Catanacho. He is opening a service at the Christ at the Checkpoint Conference. Now, you can just let that sink in a little bit, Christ at the Checkpoint. Um, he is a theologian and a biblical theologian from the Nazareth Evangelical College. The strap line of the college is something good can come from Nazareth. So, but I chose this prayer to open our session. By the way, you can watch him. You don't have to, oh, sorry. It's not appearing on the screen. Hmm. Well, first surprise there. Uh, so you won't be watching him. I guess you'll be hearing his voice. I don't know how to, don't know how to make him appear. But anyway, you'll be hearing from Johanna Catanacho and his prayer for his people. I hope that this attitude and this sense of uh, God working in, the, uh, in and among the peoples of the Middle East can um, be transferred to us in this seminar today. So hear from Johanna Catanacho, his prayer. Let us pray, just lift us our hearts in prayer to the Lord. Father, we thank you, we bless your name, we love you. We want your name to be honored. We want this land to be a land of mercy, of love, of grace. Father, I pray for my Messianic brothers and sisters that you will bless them, embrace them with your love, with your grace. Be with them. Father, I pray for the Israeli leaders and for the Palestinian leaders that you will have mercy on us. Lord, we need you. Come to our country and save us from our sinful 
from actions, from our hearts, from evil, from bloodshed. Save us from wars, from occupation, from discrimination. Save us from arrogance. And help me and help my brothers and sisters to repent. We want your name to be honored. We want to be messengers of blessings. We don't want to be part of the problem. Help us to be part of the solution. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know of any of us who would disagree with that prayer. Yohana uh, Catanacho is Palestinian ethnically. He is Israeli by citizenship, so he is a Palestinian Israeli. And most importantly, of course, he is a follower of Christ. Now, I would like to begin this afternoon because I am a teacher after all. And uh, I'm going to give you a little quiz. And you don't have to answer these questions out loud. They're to help you kind of get your brain awake after lunch and situate you as to what you really think about Israel. So here are some questions. Israel in the Bible and the contemporary state of Israel. Okay, so when we read the word Israel in the Bible and when we think of the comp contemporary state of Israel in 2021, what is the relationship? Are they one and the same? Are they similar? So I've put, maybe they have similar land, they have similar DNA, similar biology, similar history. Are they similar? Or are they two different enti entities? Okay, so just think about that for a moment. Come up with your own answer, right? So you know where you stand now. It might be important for where you stand after this seminar is over. And then here's a, here's a more uh, perhaps controversial issue, Christian Zionism. Now I'm going to define this very simply as moral, monetary, or political support of the state of Israel by Christians in order to, or to preserve Jewish control of the region comprising Israel and Palestine. Okay, so just, just kind of let your minds go over that a minute and say, yeah, I'm, I'm there. And that's the question. So are you a Christian Zionist? Are you? I'm not ask, I don't want you to answer out loud, really, because the point of this seminar is not that we put each other in camps and start throwing stones at each other. The point of this seminar is that we grapple with where we are and then begin to grapple with the Word of God. That's what I want us to, to do. So just answer that question in your own mind. Now, the title of the seminar is The Israel of God. So uh, this is taken from Paul's letter to the Galatians. So the last verses, right as he, close, he closes, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them 
and upon the Israel of God. Now you notice before the, our, our phrase, there is and, and upon. And believe it or not, theologians disagree over the meaning of that word and. Can you believe that? It's supposed to be a little bit humorous. Theologians disagree about a lot of things. Uh, some will say the and just means it's just a normal conjunction. So Paul is asking God's blessing on two separate entities. On those who walk by this rule that circumcision and uncircumcision accounts for nothing but a new creation. And he's asking God's blessing on Israel, another group. And some say, no, the and is ex-exegetical, ex, ex if I can get my word right. So it would be better to translate it, uh, those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. So those would see, no, Paul is saying, this is the Israel of God, those who walk by this rule. Now, I'm not going to give you my opinion on that, but I just want you to think about it with me. Because, you see, the way, the way you read this is probably not going to differ based on the text itself. There's one word that is understood differently, one word. But the way you read this is going to depend on how you read the book of Galatians and the Pauline corpus, all of Paul's letters, and the New Testament and the Old Testament. Remember when the young lawyer came up to Jesus and he says, what, what must I do? You know, tell me how to be righteous. And Jesus says, what does the law say? How do you read it? And I think that's the question that we're asking today is, how are we reading the text of Scripture? It's there. Uh, and all sides of the questions I've asked have different ways of reading the Scripture. So the question that faces us today is, how do we read? Now, I would like you just to take a moment and uh, just talk with the people at your table for just a minute. And here's the question. You don't have to reveal your answers to the quiz, right? But I'd like you to, I'd like you to answer this question. This issue of sort of identifying Israel and knowing what we should believe about Israel is important in our faith. And I want you to rank it on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being absolutely not important at all, five being of moderate importance and 10 being of extreme, extreme importance. So I'd like you to just take a moment around your table and say, well, I'm at two, oh, I'm at eight. And maybe if you have time, you can say why, but go right to the question, where do you put this question? How important is it in your faith, in your Christian life, in your theology? Okay, one to 10, go. All right, thank you. I hope you've had a good conversation, gotten to know the people around your table a little bit. If you decide the seminar's boring, you can just turn around and talk to your neighbor. <clears throat> but I'm going to suggest that uh, this question of who are the people of God actually is a very important question in our faith. It's very important to the way we understand Scripture. It's, it's central to the Bible. This whole question is, who are God's people? 
who belong to him, who's in covenant relationship with God. That's the question of the Israel of God. And then the, the famous question is, is there one people of God or is there, are there two? Um, and many will say there are two. In fact, there are, uh, there's a dual covenant kind of view. There's a restorationist kind of view. There's the idea that the church will be taken out of the world in a rapture and then God will continue his plan with Israel. I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying things that are new to you. But the way we think about the people of God impacts the way we view our scriptures, which of course impacts the way we live in our world. Need I say that this is a contemporary issue? We've just had, of course, a major, um, I won't say full-blown war, but battle in the Middle East with uh, Hamas rockets being shot into Israel and Israeli citizens died. I think somewhere in the teens, maybe 13, Israelis put to death. Uh, somewhere around 250 Palestinians killed, major territories lost, 60 of those Palestinians were children. So um, this issue is contemporary, and the way we answer it, I think, bears on that situation in the Middle East. Whether we realize that or not, and maybe some things we'll share later, will show just how much bearing those, those things have. It is important in terms of the commission, the Great Commission. Now, I realize I've spent most of my life on countries, in countries that border Israel, in Egypt, in Beirut, in Lebanon, for example. And um, my understanding of the whole issue, issue of Israel-Palestine is that it's a missiological emergency. It's a missiological emergency. Now, I'm gonna say a controversial thing, but, uh, I don't think we reach the Muslim world. Mm. I don't think we reach the Muslim world unless we have this issue cleared up in our minds. It's that important. And, and the Muslim world, by the way, is one in every five persons in the world. So I'm saying to you, we don't fulfill the Great Commission until this gets straightened out. And then it's incredibly confusing. <laughs> it's incredibly confusing. I, was, I can't tell you the hours I've spent trying to prepare for this seminar, listening to both sides of the question and looking at some very well-reputed evangelical spokespersons and what they have to say about this. And you just hear all sides of the issue. It comes down even the terminology you use. Is it the West Bank or is it Judea, Judea and Samaria? Uh, is it Israel? Or is it Israel-Palestine? Or is it Palestine-Israel? Uh, and these, the way you say these things actually paint you into a camp or into a corner. Now, please do me the kindness of not, you know, sort of putting me into a box. I'll try to use a generally accepted terminology, but I'm almost sure to upset some of you today. I'm almost positive I'm going to do that. And yet, um, I think having lived in that part of the world for so long, I, I hope there's something I have to say, to share with my brothers and sisters in Christ in the United States. So I'd like to share that with you. And uh, you are most welcome to disagree with me. And you're most welcome to voice it. And I would like to say that I do not, I'm not an official EPC representative. I'm not asked to present the EPC view on Israel today. 
uh, I'm sharing with you an experience of a, of a missionary who's lived in that part of the world. So let me give you a synopsis of the seminar. I know it's uh, afternoon gets long. And by the way, we're scheduled to go all the way to five. So I thought we were going to exegete all the Old Testament prophets of Israel. And... Well, let me, uh, let me say that we could go a couple of hours, I think. That wouldn't be too much of a surprise to me. Uh, but we'll go in this way. We'll look at the Old Testament first, then the New Testament. So we're going to be looking at scriptures. And I'm going to be suggesting some, a way of reading scripture, a how-to of reading these scriptures in the Old and New Testament. And that should take the first hour plus. And then at the end, I, and I was reluctant even to do this, but at the end, we're going to look at the contemporary state of Israel and issues between Israel and Palestine. And how what we've talked about in our scriptures might um, influence or impact what's happening or how we view Israel-Palestine. Okay, so here's a synopsis. I'm going to suggest to you that the identity boundaries of Israel were never ethnic, but always covenantal. That from Abraham and before and beyond, people have entered into relationship with God through faith. And in the Old Testament, receiving the sign of the covenant, they were able to become full members, okay? I'm going to suggest to you that the Old Testament anticipates the new. And remember, uh, Dr. Duncan said this morning, Ligon Duncan, discipleship has to engage the Old Testament. I said it so clearly and so beautifully. Uh, so we're going to engage the Old Testament. And I think the Old Testament anticipates the new, New Testament expansion. And there are two key themes here. One is land and one is people. All right, so I'm suggesting to you that Israel's people through the scripture narrative are expanded as the nations are included. Now that's obvious and uh, it screams at you from the New Testament but it's also present in the old. And then I'm going to suggest to you that Israel's land becomes a renewal of creation, okay? So that's the seminar synopsis, at least the first part, the biblical part. And we'll dive into it now, but before we dive, I want to anticipate an objection because I've written about this topic in a few places and you know, spoken on it a time or two. I always get the charge that I am a replacement theologian. In other words, I believe the church replaces Israel. Sometimes this is called supersession, that God worked with Israel for a time, Israel rejected Christ, Israel was set aside, and God carries on his purposes with the church as a replacement. No, I, I reject that uh, label entirely and utterly. Uh, first of all, as you know, that kind of replacement thinking uh, has been part of the po pogroms that have been directed against the Jews in Europe, for example. It culminated in Nazism. So that's, that's a, a racist view, an anti-Jewish view, and it's a view that I repudiate in the strongest possible terms. Uh, my view holds, is different from replacement theology in these points. 
One, it brings honor to the Jews. This is all from Romans 9 to 11. Uh, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. Right? So everything I've got, I received it from that Jewish heritage. It's, I am uniquely blessed because of the Jewish people. Okay? Second of all, there's a familial longing. And Paul expresses this in such strong terms. I don't know if I can totally identify with Paul here, but listen to him as he says, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish, I could wish that I myself were uh, accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred, according to the flesh. Isn't that poignant? Isn't that powerful? The apostolic longing for the returning of the Jewish people. And I have that. That's part of my desire for the Jewish people is that they return to Christ. Okay? Expectation. I think Romans 11, uh, I don't see this so much. Some people see this all through Revelation. I see it more in Romans 11, that uh, there's an expectation of their return. Paul says, there's a couple of three sentences there. He says, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will, will their full inclusion mean? So Paul seems to expect a pleroma, that Greek word of the fullness, a pleroma of the Jews being brought in to the, to, uh, to the people of Christ. So this is not replacement theology, what you'll hear today. I would like to call it incorporation or fulfillment or an expansive theology. So I believe we, uh, we adhere to that trunk of that olive tree that Paul talked about in Romans 11. We're grafted in as the non-native branches, but it is one tree with one people. And if God is able to graft us goyim, us pagans in, he's certainly able to graft in the Jewish people, right? So I have that longing for the Jewish people, and I want that to be clear uh, even before we start looking at things. Now, as we begin this kind of journey into the Old Testament, and this will be very sort of uh, big picture, I guess we're flying at whatever, 30,000 feet here. I think we reformed Christians, we tend to know instinctively that Christ fulfills Israel. Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. That, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that in Christ all the promises of God are yes. The divine yes is uttered from the Father to the Son. So we realize that in some way Christ fulfills the Old Testament. But I think we get into a little trouble when we start thinking in these categories of people and land. Now, how does that work itself out? Because there are borders that are promised the uh, people of Israel. And, and there's, a, there, there's a people that still identify themselves as the physical, ethnic descendants of Abraham. So how do we work this out in terms of people and land? So there's a place where we typically start in the Old Testament, right? Where God begins to promise people and make promises about people and land. So where would that be in the Old Testament? Genesis 12. Very good. So let's look at it. 
See, my PowerPoint just anticipates what you're going to say. Uh, here are the promises. We know these well, that God would make of Abram a great nation, bless him, make him great, so he would be a blessing, and that him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We, read, we heard this morning, if you were in Ligon Duncan's message, that this, the fulfillment of this comes actually in the Great Commission. To your offspring, so here's the people, to your offspring I will give this land. See, here are the two themes. Uh, and theologians, biblical theologians will say, if you're not dealing with the land issues of the Old Testament, you're just not dealing with the Old Testament. Because that's what Israel was promised. That's what they were given. They were given a land in which they were to be the people of God. So we've got to deal with this land thing. But right from the beginning, we also note the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine and you are aliens and tenants. So there is a land that's given, but it's given as caretakers, as tenants. Now, here's my question. What if the story really doesn't begin here? What if it doesn't begin here after all? What if it begins here? So the people that God created, his image bearers, from the very beginning, they were to multiply and fill the earth. This was God's purpose. And as you know, you know the story, this purpose was interrupted because man, rather than embrace the loving leadership of God and the intimate relationship with him in the garden. That garden was to be a, a kind of a temple, a place of worship and a place where we found meaningful work and, and beauty. We rejected all of that, right? So that was this right at the beginning of the biblical narrative. And I'm talking to people who know this, obviously. But there was a massive interruption. There was a massive change that changed everything. But the land, as Greg Beale tells us, he's a uh, theologian, I believe teaches at Gordon-Conwell. He says, Adam and Eve were to expand the borders of Eden, wherein was God's presence. And he and his progeny were to expand these borders until they circumscribed the entire earth. And so God's glory would be reflected throughout the entire earth through the image bearers. Now, for those of you who are teaching God's word, I exhort you to read Greg Beale. He gives you a nice narrative view of scripture and what scripture is intended to be communicating to us. So I'm suggesting to you, this is where God's people and God's land start. This is the starting point. Now, actually, the the covenant with Abraham was a re-beginning. It was a recommencement of God's purposes that from Abraham and the people of Israel, God intended to recreate something that he, that was lost, not that he lost, but we lost in Genesis 1 to 3. So let's, let's go back to those patriarchs now. Uh, the land given to Abraham's patriot, to Abraham's offspring, and that's the zara, or the, it's the physical offspring. It's the seed of Abraham. Now, your theological bells should be going ding, 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 ding when I say seed, right? Because that was the promise that the seed of the woman, 
would crush the head of the serpent. So we're, the biblical narrative, the story, just sets us up for that expectation. So when we read the seed of Abraham, we are to be connecting that biblically, theologically with the creation story, right? So God is bringing to fulfillment, despite our uh, rebellion against him, he's bringing to fulfillment what he said he would. Now, but here are the borders. Uh, sorry, sorry, I'm not re ready for the borders yet. But your name, oh, sorry, the, the borders are in the top verse. Uh, Abraham's offspring, your borders will extend, or your land will extend from the river of Egypt, the great river, to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, is that the land that the state of Israel occupies today? No. That land includes half of Egypt, all of Israel, all of Palestine, West Bank and Gaza Strip. It includes all of, virtually all of Syria, Jordan, and about 80% of Iraq, bits of Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. So that's the land. Now, Johanna Katanachu, who you heard pray, says the borders are expressed five times in the Old Testament. And always they're slightly different. They're moving. So, if we want to interpret the Bible literally, we actually need to make sure Israel takes over all those Middle Eastern countries. If, if we believe the promises are fulfilled to the state, right? Because they are the borders. That's what was given. Uh, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So I hope you're seeing already, I think Genesis 17 already for me just about resolves the issue, a very contentious issue of who is Israel, who are the children of Abraham, who are the sons of Abraham, who are the true children of Abraham. God says he's going to make Abraham a father, not of a nation, but a multitude of nations. Now, you may say, well, okay, Ishmael, Ishmael became a great nation. And then, you know, there were others who were descendants of Abraham, the Edomites, and so forth. So is it, is it a small conglomeration of Middle Eastern peoples? Are those the peoples of Abraham? Well, God's promises to Abraham seem stupendous, don't they? I mean, a multitude of nations. I see you, Abraham, being the father of a vast, extensive network, nations, peoples that are your children. See, it's, when you read it that way, it's incredibly beautiful. And you're, you're, uh, you're getting a, a portent of the gospel here, aren't you? <laughs> you're getting a portent of the gospel. I wish I had written down Leon Duncan's statement when he said... Uh, you know, the church of Christ, by its very nature, it must be multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational. Do you remember him saying that? It was, yes, that's the church. That's the people of the covenant. All right. I'm uh, preaching more than I should here, but let me keep moving. So just a few more promises that are given to the patriarchs. 
Uh, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. This is after Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. You've not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand by the seashore. Now that first one, we're visually, we think, okay, that, maybe that's a limited number. We know now that it's not a limited number. But think of that, the sand by the seashore. Think of that. Think of the nature of this promise. And also, uh, to Isaac he says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I love the stories of Jacob. The first time, Jake, the Lord, Yahweh, and by the way, in my biblical theology, Yahweh in the Old Testament, when he, when he appears, he's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I just kind of take that as a given. Now you can disagree with that, but I challenge you to read it that way. <laughs> when you begin to read it that way, and you think, well, could this be Jesus? Could this be the Lord Jesus? So here, Yahweh has come down the ladder from heaven and is standing beside Jacob. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the east, west, north, and south, the four points of the compass, and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Okay, so there are these incredible promises, incredible, made, made to the patriarchs. I'm God Almighty, he says. Now this is as Jacob comes back into the land that was given to Abraham. I'm God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations. Hebrews, Hebrew scholars, it's kahal goyim. It's like a, a congregation, an assembly of nations. I'm going to make come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. Okay, let me, uh, this, these universal themes continue throughout the Old Testament, right? And in order to keep you from going to sleep, let me ask you, uh, where do you see this in the book of the Psalms? Just stand up and yell out, there is, a, there is a mic here, and maybe, if Jason will be kind enough, where do we see these universal themes in the book of Psalms? Anybody want to share with us? Greg Copen. Psalm 2. Mm, that's a good one. My slides are just right on the money here. <laughs> I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 96. Psalm 96. I don't have that one. Uh, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Right? So David, king of Israel calls all the earth to come and worship. Any more? 72. 72, right? It's in the, oh, you cheated, Jane, you cheated. <laughs> we caught you. No, you caught us. Psalm 72, I love this one. May he have dominion. This is the messianic king, right? This is the Messiah. May have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and the enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish, probably Spain, what we think of as Spain, 
and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. These universal themes. Any other psalms that you've just got burning on the tip of your brain you want to share with us? They're, they're, it's all through the psalms. Okay, well, but, but it does look a little bit like dom domination here, doesn't it? Looks like the Messianic king is dominating the peoples. And that does seem to be part of the picture. There is the, the domination there. But there's some other parts in the Old Testament prophecies that suggest something almost shocking, almost scandalous for the Jewish people. And here's one such passage. Now, there, there are many others. This one just happens to be a favorite of mine because it's talking to Egypt and Assyria. Now, you know the Old Testament history, right? So Egypt was the enslaver of Israel. Assyria was the exiler of part of Israel. So what do we expect God to do to those people? Zap them, yeah. Get rid of those dudes. And sure enough, Isaiah 19 kind of starts off in that way. They will tremble before the Lord. Actually, previous to this verse, there is some zapping going on. God is disciplining and, disciplining and punishing the peoples of Assyria and Egypt. But there's, there's this unfolding story in Isaiah 19. And it's just beautiful, particularly when you've lived in Egypt, as I have, and you've heard Egyptian pastors stand in the pulpit and say, Blessed be Egypt, uh, my people. You know, they just love that verse. Uh, they will tremble before the Lord, these peoples. They will swear allegiance to Yahweh. Now that's the, that's the Jewish name of God. It's not Ra, it's not the Egyptian God. They will swear allegiance to Yahweh. And among them will be those who speak the language of Canaan. An altar to Yahweh in Egypt when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior. And they will know Yahweh, worship him and make vows to him. And then this, this one that's just almost the scandalous grace of God. Egypt, in that day, Israel will be the third. Huh. With Egypt and Assyria. A blessing. Think of Abrahamic covenant. A blessing in the midst of the earth. Whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Oh. Assyria, the work of my hands. Israel, my inheritance. Amen. Yahweh is an equal opportunity redeemer. Isn't he? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it the wonderful grace of God? Are there other prophecies I would like to just look at quickly? Because we'll make reference to this when we go into the New Testament that Israel was intended to spread. It was never intended to be restricted within political or geopolitical borders. The vine of Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. That's Isaiah's vision of the vine. And again, your theological bells should be going ding, 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 because someone said, I am the vine. And it wasn't because he was looking at a beautiful vineyard on the hills of Israel. When he said, I am the vine, he said, I'm that vine. That's the vine I am. And then this, another one, is a favorite. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, it's like when you want to get your kid a bicycle. <laughs> 
and you find one for you know, $49.99, and you say, that's not good enough. Now I'm trivializing this a bit, but I want, I'd like you to just get the emotion of this prophecy as the father speaks to the suffering servant, who we know from Matthew 12 is the Lord Jesus. But he's speaking to him here as Israel, the nation. And he says, it's too light a thing. It's not good enough. It's not big enough. It's not weighty enough that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I mean, brothers and sisters, if you were to have talked to the Jewish prophets of that day, they would have said, that's what the story is. It's all about bringing Israel back and Jacob back. That's what it is. But Isaiah, inspired of the Spirit, says, no, no. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, as we know, there are lots of Gentiles that incorporate into Israel. I thought immediately of Ruth and Rahab, and then I, some of my Palestinian friends pointed out to me that actually there were 32,000 Midianite women that were incorporated into Israel. All right, so, so we're not really, not really looking at an ethnicity or an ethnic uh, identity marker here when we're thinking about Old Testament Israel. There is a covenantal identity marker, and that's circumcision. And in order to be a full, to be completely integrated into the Jewish community, uh, you had to receive the sign of the covenant for males, right? But there are others who, as far as we know, never received the sign of the covenant, but they certainly were in some way implicated, brought into Israel in some way. People like Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, Naaman, the Syrian, you remember, who was healed of his uh, leprosy, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king who acknowledged Yahweh alone as God, the mariners who threw, jo threw Jonah into the sea. There are others who we know less about, but we know also the witness of God through the Jews was powerful to these people. The Egyptians who witnessed the Exodus, Cyrus, the king of Persia, who decreed for the Jews to return, uh, the widow in the Elijah story, and the queen of Sheba. So all these people in the Old Testament narrative are brought in or in some way included, embraced in God's purposes, expressed admittedly, you know, not admittedly, with uh, um, expressed beautifully through the people of Israel, but not exclusive to the people of Israel. Now, here's the, here's the rub, okay? There are so many passages in, Israel, in the Old Testament that appear to make these promises eternal and unconditional and exclusive to those who identify as the physical descendants of Abraham. Now here's, I'll give you one. I've, I've chose the most beautiful and poignant one I could come up with, and then there'll be some other references. Um, so let me just show you this one. Oh, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? I, you know, ladies, I've never known that, right? You know it. You know that sensation. You know that emotion. You know that attachment. And have no compassion on the child she has born. 
though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, because of passages like this, a great section of the Church of Jesus Christ says that these promises have yet to be fulfilled to ethnic Israel. And so they anticipate that they will be fulfilled either shortly before the return of Christ or during a millennial kingdom, that there will be a literal fulfillment to an ethnic nation. Now, the next thing I'm going to ask you to do is at your table, I'm going to just choose two of these passages. Uh, let's choose Jeremiah 31, 31 to 37. You're, so your table choose either one of the two, okay? Jer Jeremiah 31, 31 to 37 or Amos 9, 11 to 15. Okay, so agree as a table and to which one you would like to read. And then here's the question. How does, or first, I guess, does the New Testament interpret that passage at all? And how does it interpret that passage? Now that's kind of a, that's a master's level assignment for you guys because you're pastors and elders after all. So the idea is you're going to read that passage and say, where is this referenced in the New Testament? And what is the New Testament author saying? Now, you could probably do this for a half hour. I'm going to give you five minutes. So you better jump in, okay? So look at Jeremiah 31, 31 to 37, or don't do both of them, Amos 9, 11 to 15. Read that at your table, and then talk about what, uh, what is said about it in the New Testament. All right. I hope you've had enough time for a little bit of conversation. Uh, let's stand up. Let's stand up, and uh, I'll ask Jason if he would take the microphone. Maybe somebody would just, you'd like to say, okay, here's what I've found. This is what I discovered. Just raise your hand. Jason will bring you the microphone. I gotta find something. What did you discover? Who wants to share? Somebody, what did you discover? I've got a. We, yeah. we talked about, um, uh, we interpreted Jeremiah 31, 31 to 37, and uh, one of the links we found was to Luke 22, 20. Okay. Uh, when Jesus says at the Last Supper, this is, uh, this is the new covenant, basically. So. Good, thank you. Anyone else want to add to that? Anything else about Jeremiah 31? We did Amos. You did Amos, okay. Well, let's hear, let's hear about Amos while you got that one, while you're here, uh, Jason. Yeah, we did the, uh, the Amos passage. Uh, lots of interesting things in there about the uh, fall of Luther David being restored and uh, Israel coming back and never being uprooted again. But when they, that was when they came back uh, after the exile, uh, well, they were uprooted again. So mm -hmm. you can see where there, there's some fuel there for thinking, well, this has not been fulfilled yet. That's still to come. There's going to be a time when they'll be back in the land, but not uprooted. But, but uh, James uh, talks about this passage in uh, Acts chapter 15, the Great Council of Jerusalem, the Presbyterian Church of the, of the New Testament, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the Great General Assembly in Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, James quotes it as uh, that Amos 9 as applying to 
um, what happened on Paul's first missionary journey. Right. That uh, the, this is the nations uh, that are coming back. And there's a lot of new creation stuff in the uh, Amos passage as well. And interesting, yeah, we didn't have time to delve into, wow, uh, what translation did uh, James use? And it's, it reads a little different than Amos. Probably, mm -hmm. used, uh, probably used a Greek translation. Mm -hmm. Didn't get checked out all the way. Anyway, interesting stuff. Complicated. Complicated. Point being, James uh, sees Amos 9, one of these undying promises to Israel. He sees it coming about in the inclusion of the nations into that originally Jewish church, right? Okay, anything else from Jeremiah 31? There's a lot more there to see. What was seen was wonderful. Anything else? I guess we saw in the Hebrew, in Hebrews 10 that uh, the, the writer uh, says that this promise to write the God writing the covenant on the heart of his people, that that's fulfilled in uh, Jesus' covenant uh, is a sacrificial atonement. Yeah, great. Now, I think it's, and you can remain standing for just a minute, I think it's important that when we read these passages, we always read them through the lenses of the New Testament. You know, that Jesus and his apostles teach us the interpretation of the Old Testament. Now, a lot of biblical teachers will say, no, the Old Testament prophecies are to be fulfilled literally in their own right. They will insist on that. And that's part of the division as to why certain people see an enduring ethnic Israel and others don't see the ethnicity as a defining characteristic. Uh, just to use a name that you will know is John MacArthur, right? A very respected biblical teacher. We've, at least I've learned a lot from him. There's a lot good that could be said, but John MacArthur and those of his, uh, you know, his seminary, the master's seminary would hold to this, that no, there is a literal fulfillment coming to the ethnic people of Israel because these promises have to be fulfilled in their own right. My position that I'm sharing with you is I think the apostles of Christ, if we take them for what they said, they showed us that there is a fulfillment in Christ of these promises. And that these, the question is not what do we read in the Old Testament text, the question is how do we read it? Now I'll just have you stand up for one more slide here. So these questions, is ethnicity the defining attribute of these promises? Or is there a new way to see these promises? And do Christ and his apostles shed new light? Now, this is the last Old Testament slide. You'll be glad. We're almost to, at this rate, we will go to 5 o'clock. No, we won't go to 5 o'clock. One of my favorite, as I mentioned, stories in the Old Testament is Jacob and his wrestling with Yahweh. And you know, that's where the, Israel, the name Israel comes into the scriptural narrative. Uh, Jacob is convinced he's seen God face to face, and he won't let him go until he blesses him. And uh, the Lord, Yahweh, says to him, your name shall be Israel, for you have wrestled or you have contended with God <clears throat> and man, and you have prevailed. Now, <clears throat> there, is, there is a double meaning to that name. Yisrael means 
wrestles God. So it can either mean he wrestles God or God wrestles or God contends. It can mean either, you know, linguistically. But God himself in the text says, you won the wrestling match. So you prevailed. That's what it means. Your name, you're the one who's wrestled with God and you've prevailed. Brothers and sisters, read it, read it as literature. Who went limping off into the sunset, right? Because of a touch on the hip. Who really prevailed? Yeah, God was saying, I think, to Jacob, and if you read the whole course of his life from Genesis 28 to 35, God was saying to Jacob, you prevailed because I told you when you left the land of your father, I was going to be with you and I was going to bless you and I was going to make you great. I was going to bring you back here great. And so it's God's way of somewhat humorously and ironically saying to Jacob, I have been with you and I'm going to give you the name of prevailing over God. But you remember, brother, son, you prevailed because I've caused you to prevail. So who is Israel? The people for whom Yahweh contends. The people for whom the eternal Son of God bleeds and dies. I think we can find it right there in that name. All right, now we're going to go ahead to the New Testament. And I promise I'm going to skip some slides. It's now... 2.30, so before 3 o'clock we will be through with the New Testament. <clears throat> and uh, th there's, there's just so much that could be said here. Uh, but I, I think just some ideas that are key uh, is this idea of typology. Now, we're not, we're not used to reading the Bible in types. We're not used to thinking in types. Uh, Christopher Wright says that the best way to think about types is just what you say about your friend. Oh, well, that's my friend Phil over there. That's typical of Phil. Phil, that's typical. When he does something, that's typical of him. Well, a type is that way. It's God doing things over and over in repeated fashion. The difference between a prophecy and a type is that a prophecy looks forward to what's coming and it invites or entices people into what God is doing, whereas a type looks back at what God has done. And it identifies things that God has done in patterns. So things like, you find things that really seem a little strange to us. We're not used to reading in this way. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Now Matthew just lists this sort of obscure passage out of Hosea and applies it to Jesus. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Now Jesus being God's son becomes now a reflection or a type or the fulfillment of the type. He's the archetype, if you will, of Israel. Remember in Exodus 4, God says, let my son go and worship me. And because Egypt didn't let his son go, Israel, Egypt lost his firstborn son. Remember that, Remember that whole story. So the whole idea of the sonship and is this God's son? Who is, this God's, who is Jesus as God's son? It's all tied into Israel. 
And Matthew here seems to be saying that the Israel has come. Paul's theology later will be that the seed of Abraham has arrived. And there, this imagery, these patterns, these types just follow all through the gospel. Jesus' baptism is passing through the waters, right? Israel passed through the waters. Is followed by what? 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, reflecting the 40 years of Israel in the wilderness. And then after calling his 12 disciples and even us crazy uh, Gentiles, we know that that 12 means something, right? reflects the 12 tribes of Israel. Then Jesus ascends to the mountain and he gives his Torah, his instruction from the mountain. So brothers and sisters, I'm suggesting to you that the gospel, the entire gospel narrative says to us, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types. And all of those types are expressed in and through the nation of Israel. But in Jesus, they come to their fulfillment. So the New Testament expects us to read its promises in light of Jesus coming. And if we don't, I submit we misread the Old Testament. We misread it. Now we've mentioned some of these before, but when Jesus uses images, the I am statements of John, uh, again, this is not just him picking a beautiful image out of nature. He's using this image to say, I am the vine of which Isaiah spoke. And when he says to you and to me and to all who follow him, to his apostles back in that day, you are the branches. He's saying to them, you are the means by which my kingdom will spread to the ends of the earth. And so by abiding in me, you become one with the vine. You are the fulfillment of the Old Testament vine promise. Again, too much preaching. I am the good shepherd. Just check out the Old Testament imagery of shepherds and you'll see that Jesus is fulfilling the image of Israel, the bread of life, the manna from heaven. Jesus is the light of the world. And he turns around and also calls us the light of the world. Here again, it's not just saying he's looking at the sun and saying that luminous entity in the sky, that luminous thing in the sky, I'm that. No, he's saying what the prophet spoke of as the light to the nations, that's me. That's me. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, I honestly don't think any Jewish person of Jesus' day could hear that without just recreating the scene of Ezekiel 37 in his mind, right? That, that's the resurrection scene of the Old Testament. So for Jesus to say, I am the resurrection, he's saying the, the, uh, the Israel that lies in ruins, decomposed, defeated in this valley, say to it, O oh, Ezekiel, spirit, breath, come and breathe. And Jesus, sure enough, breathes on his disciples. And he says, receive the spirit. And new life comes. And 
life is pulsating in Jerusalem. So Ezekiel 37 is actually happening. The reestablishment of the people of Israel is happening <coughs> excuse me, through our Lord Jesus. So many others. Uh, you love this promise from he who believes in me from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. That's a temple promise. That's a promise of a millennial kingdom in which the Mount of Olives will split and a river will flow from that temple to the east and to the west and it will bring fruitfulness to the land. And Jesus is saying, unbelievably, he's saying, he who believes in me from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. I am the temple. Now, again, we're not used to reading the Bible this way, are we? We're not used to it. We need help. And I'm, I guess I'm appealing to us, let's not take the Bible less seriously. Let's take it more seriously. Let's hold to it firmer. Let's love it. Let's believe it. And let's get these truths into our people that we are connected to the ancient people of Israel. Now there are a few uh, explicit land references in the New Testament, right? Because the Jews actually occupied the land, but it would be more proper to say <laughs> that the Jews were occupied by the Romans on the land. With me? But there are some expressions where Jesus seems to say very clearly something about the land. And one is right in there in the Sermon on the Mount. He's citing Psalm 3711, which is an inheritance promise. It's a land promise. And he says, first of all, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Right? So there's an inheritance promise there. And it's not for those who were born with a you know, Jewish pedigree, honestly. It's for those who have been renewed in the meekness of Christ and follow his Torah. There's, there's much more uh, that I will skip a few things. One is just this parable in Matthew 21 of the tenants. Do you recall that the, the vineyard owner has left the vineyard and he's rented out or he's sublet, he's let his vineyard out to the tenants. And he sends messenger after messenger and they, they beat them and send them away shamefully. And then he sends his son. And of course you remember what happens to the son. The son is beaten, left for dead. He's and, and I think when the Jews heard that, they must have said, whoa, that, that's weird. That would never, ever happen. That, there's no way that could happen. And yet Jesus is saying, in fact, it is happening. And so that vineyard will be taken from you and given to people who produce its fruit. Now, I said this once, and somebody said, okay, so that is replacement theology. No, it's not, and here's why. Because the vineyard is not given to Gentiles. It's not given to me, right? It's given to the leadership of the kingdom. 
all of whom, without exception, were Jewish, the 12 apostles. So Jesus is talking to the Jewish leadership, the tenants of the vineyard, and he's saying, you guys are being removed, and I'm bringing a new leadership into place here, right? So it's not anti-Semitism. It's not anti-Jewish. It is Jesus' promise that his apostles form the new leadership of his people. I've become very conscious of time now, so, but I just, these things are important to note, I think, as we go through the uh, Old Testament. You know, Jesus lived in a land that was occupied by a foreign power. Has anyone here lived in a land occupied by a foreign power? Just raise your hand if you have. Okay, we have some. Yeah. Now, for Jesus, it was the daily reality of seeing Roman soldiers, of being forced to carry their gear because you're not a Roman citizen. So you're at their beck and call. And yet, Jesus mystifyingly never says, we Jews are going to kick Rome out. In fact, he seems to say the opposite. And you remember this story of the Roman centurion uh, who, whose servant Jesus healed. I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, why did he pull out that Roman and make an example of him to his disciples and to us who read the gospel? It's the most uncanny, unbelievable thing that he would do that, that Jesus would take an enemy occupier and say, here is an example of the love of God. And then he says, many will come from east and west. That's outside of the scope of Israel, right? And recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the family fellowship in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. See, I don't, I don't know how you can read that and say Jesus is not doing something entirely revolutionary. He's upending every expectation. His gospel and his kingdom brought something so new. And all of these points, we could talk about all of them, of Jesus' expectation for his kingdom, who his people will be. So if he fulfills Israel, if he truly fulfills Israel, and if these kinds of people become his people, then I think it's, uh, it's an error in reading scripture to posit a hard and fast distinction between an ethnicity and those who are of the faith of Christ. I just don't see that the scripture holds that for us anymore. You're welcome to disagree with me. I, I would welcome that. And maybe we'll have that conversation in just a moment. Uh, Jesus says this, and again, the sheep, the sheepfold, these are Israelite, a covenant sort of images. I have other sheep, not of this fold. Who could they be? Who could they be other than non-Jews? I must bring them also, an urgency there, and they will listen to my voice. 
So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, that's uh, just a few thoughts from our Lord. There are other thoughts from the Apostle Paul, and this is where it becomes so explicit that you just can't get away from it. But I thought uh, I wanted you to uh, hear it from a, a friend of mine named Munder Isaac. And please download the resource sheet and look at what these Palestinian Christians say. Uh, I hope I can get this video up in just a moment. Munder is the dean of the Bethlehem Bible College, and he lives in Bethlehem. All right, so let's, uh, let's see if we can get this. I hope you can see it here. Jason has come and told me how to do that, so let me just go there. Yeah, I need to get out of this. Looks like I may not be online. Oh, what's going on? Oh, maybe close the program. Oh. There you go. Okay, no, that's the old, that's the other one. Okay, you're going to have to give me just a minute here. Internet open. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. All right. Ah, I think it's. I think we're just not going to have it. All right. Looks like it's not going to work. I'm sorry. Let me. I'll give it one more try, but I don't think it's going to work. Uh, I'll try to get the PowerPoint back and share that with you. It's trying to close me down. Is that what happened last time? Mm -mm. No, it got to... Uh... All right, apologies, a little bit of a technical glitch here. Uh, but while I'm getting this back, getting the PowerPoint back, uh, let me just ask you, and then we'll, we'll take a break in just a moment. Let me ask you, you're familiar with Pauline thought on who is the seed of Abraham and who are the recipients of his promise, who are the heirs of his promise. So what would you say to me uh, about what Paul said about this? Who are the heirs of the promises to Abraham? Yes. Always by election, always by faith. Okay. Jacob, he was the younger, served the older. Good, thank you. Anyone else? 
faith as being the faith of Christ, the faith of the Messiah, the faith in Christ. It's in Galatians, it's you know, focuses in on that, and now at the you know Kairos time, uh, God sent his son. Mm-hmm. Okay. Other thoughts? All right, well, I'd really like you to hear it from my friend Munver, but since uh, Internet is not cooperating today, let's look at just a few of these, and then I'll give you a break in just a moment. We'll go out and come back, and then we'll talk about uh, Israel and Palestine today. Paul makes it explicit, doesn't he? For no one is a Jew. Romans 2, 28 to 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So brothers and sisters, again, this this radical sort of uh, reformulation of the promises and the recipients of the promises based on the inbreaking kingdom of God, right? Paul, in Paul's thinking, when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he created a new humanity. He created a new man, new Adam, right? So in Paul's thinking, we're actually in the end times, right? We're we're the recipients of a new creation. So I think we don't think radically enough. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, and here it is, this is these Genesis 12, 15, 17, 18 promises, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And I don't think that's just meaning the bless, being blessed from Abraham, it's actually we become heirs of the Abrahamic blessing through faith, that, uh, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And this is the consistent testimony of the New Testament, that the, re, uh, the reconstituting of Israel, the return to the land, if you will, is the outpouring of the spirit. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Get this, and if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. So to whom does the land belong? Well, Christ, but also to you. To you and to me. We are the heirs of that promise. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir. Now, see, again, we kind of read past that because we're not used to language about heirs and so forth. But when Paul says you are an heir, he means land. You get the land. You get the blessing of Abraham. You get it. It's yours. It's all yours. For the promise, look at, the, look at these uh, kind of universal terms here. The promise of Abraham and his offspring that, that he would be heir of the 
Now you would expect he would say there, the land, the, the land of Israel, right? But the word he uses in Greek is the cosmos. You're gonna be the heir of the cosmos, Abraham. So Paul, where did you get that? Well, Paul read his Old Testament, didn't he? Some of those passages we were reading. So that promise did not come through the law, but through faith. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. So you become child of Abraham, citizen of Israel through faith. You want to know what I really believe? That's what I really believe. And then when Paul, after he's introduced this air language, what does he discuss next? The creation groans in travail, awaiting for the revealing of the sons of God. You see, so if you read Paul, his promises and what he's talking about uh, us inheriting, it's not divorced from the land at all. It's just vastly expanded that we are heirs of the creation. It belongs to us in Christ. Now here's another uh, Beale quote from Greg Beale. Israel, this is good, you know, dense theological language, so you theologians will love it. Hopefully the rest of you can tolerate it. Israel was a corporate Adam whose land was the new Eden. And its design was just like Eden's to be expanded over the whole earth by its faithful people. As the Holy of Holies, patterned also after Eden, was to expand to cover the city of Jerusalem. So Beale has been showing this through his argument, but now he's summarizing. Then the temple city would widen to cover the land, and finally the temple land would be amplified to surround the whole earth. The original Eden, Israel's old temple, old land, and old city never reached the universal goal for which they were designed. As such, they became imperfect typological realities, pointing forward to a time when these would again become eschatological realities whose design would reach their final goal. Now, um, you know, I, I know this, I don't want to dwell on this a long time, but Romans 9 through 11 is really important to this argument. And uh, many of those who say these promises are for an ethnic Israel, they will point to Romans 11:26, the passage that says, all Israel will be saved. And the argument that they use is that Romans 9 through 11, in the context, right, these are theologians, and they're saying, in the context, Romans 9 through 11 is speaking about ethnic Israel, speaking to those who self-identify as Jews. Now, that's true. Most of those references are to the Jewish people. Nevertheless, as Paul begins that passage, he, he lays down his thinking in two ways, right? There's this parallelism. So just follow me through this verse. Now, this is Romans 9, 6 through 8. Not all who are descended from Israel, now that's the ethnic Israel, that's the DNA Israel, right? 
belong to Israel. Okay, so there's, there seems to be two concepts of Israel. One, one is the ethnic one. One is some other group that, uh, that is a different Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the first Israel, I, I did it backwards. The first Israel is the wider grouping, and the second Israel, oh, man, I'm getting myself confused, I apologize. Let me just go on. And not all are children of Abraham, that means that again is the wider group because they are his offspring, that's the more narrow group. But through Isaac, your offspring will be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh. There you have it, the DNA, the biological descendants who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. Now, Paul is going to answer this objection here that um, God's promise to Israel has failed. And he's saying, no, in fact, it hasn't failed at all. I'm a Jew myself, and God is preserving a remnant. So it has not failed. But throughout this passage, he will lay out this argument, and he's talking about the Jewish people, but he's also saying that not all those who are ethnically Jews are the Jewish people. Again, Romans 9, 25 and 26. Those are not my people. Those who are not my people, I will call my people in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. So I think we've got to reckon with that. Another example, again, from this nine, Romans 9 through 11 context, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who calls on him. So Paul's argument basically goes, God has not rejected his people, his Jewish people, Romans 11.1, 1, there is a remnant. Israel's trespass leads to Gentile salvation to make Israel jealous. So Paul here is kind of going behind the scenes and saying, what is motivating God to bring these, uh, uh, to, to harden the Jews for this period of time? Well, it's so that his salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. But he says the fullness, and this is such an interesting passage to me. I wish Paul had just expounded it a little bit further. But he expects the fullness of the Jews to come in. That's in Romans eleven twelve, But that will be after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, in Romans eleven twenty five. Now, I don't understand that to mean every single Jew any more than I understand it to mean every single Gentile. But I think Paul awaits a fullness of the eschatological Israel that is comprised, this is not replacement theology, that is comprised of Jews who embrace Christ and Gentiles who embrace Christ. And that's his whole argument. What, is they, what are they brought into? They are brought into the one people of God, the olive tree. So both Jews and Gentiles, Jews can be regrafted in, Gentiles can be grafted in. Now some of you, your eyes are glazing over, so let's take a break. Let's take a break and we'll come back and when we come back I promise we'll begin to talk a little bit about contemporary Israel-Palestine. As you're coming back together, I did uh, 
Jason, help me. I was able to get Mundur's YouTube talk up. Again, this is the dean of the Bethlehem Bible College. Mundur, Mundur lives in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem was a center of Palestinian Christians for generations and centuries. So um, he is quite, he's, uh, he's grieving what's going on in his city and town today. But this again is another talk he, he gave at the same conference that we saw earlier, Christ at the Checkpoint. And I'll just let you listen to a little bit of what he says. Hopefully I can. It's the center and focal point of the biblical narrative. Simply put, when I read the Bible, it points me to Jesus. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the seed of the woman who will redeem us from the curse of Eden. So from the very beginning, it's about him. He is the offspring of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. He is what the prophets point us to. He is the promised Messiah and Savior from the line of David and Judah, whose reign will extend to the ends of the earth. He is the one returning again to redeem us. But more to the point, in Galatians 3.16, there is this verse. Everyone speaks about John 3.16. I always love to speak about Galatians 3.16. Paul says, so that in Jesus Christ, the blessings of Abraham might come to Gentiles. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Keep that in mind. And to your offspring, who is, say it with me, Christ. This is a massive statement. Paul here affirms that Jesus is the only legitimate recipient of the Abrahamic promises. Verbatim. Denying, in essence, any other claim by any person or any people group to the benefits of the covenant. The story of Israel narrows down in Paul's thinking until it's summed up in one person, that is Jesus. And so going back again to Galatians 3, few verses later, we read, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. To quote Chris Wright, Paul here insists that Gentiles who believe in Jesus gain nothing less than the full inheritance that had belonged exclusively but temporarily to Israel before. I love this quote. This inclusive understanding of the promises is evident elsewhere in the Pauline episodes. In Ephesians 2, Paul speaks of the Gentile Christians affirming that they are members of the household of God, fellow citizens. Also in Ephesians 3, 6, he says, uh, the, uh, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise again in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so here's my conclusion about that. The church today in Christ inherits the story of Israel. It is not simply that Gentile Christians share some of Israel's blessings, they join Israel. We continue the story of Israel through our unity with Jesus, the Israelite. This is my theology, simple. Having explained this, this is one major area where I have a huge problem with Christian Zionism. Because it places Israel, seems to me, as the center of the biblical narrative. The Old Testament prophets are about Israel, we are told. 
the offspring of Abraham is ethnic Israel, we are told, not Jesus and those who are in him. For me, this is replacement theology. Israel has replaced Jesus in many forms of Christian Zionism. My second point okay. is that Jesus Christ is right. about our theology and about our politics. We are immediately attacked. Okay. Uh, I'm going to stop now. I realize I've been talking a long time. And I would like to just uh, give you a chance to talk back and to talk to each other. Uh, but let's do it as a large group. Let's see if we can do that and uh, share the mic. So if you have comments, you have questions, you have thoughts, uh, let's hear from that. And then we'll try to talk a little bit about the contemporary state of Palestine, of Israel and Palestine. Jason, just for your, I may need help getting yeah. back, getting my PowerPoint back up here. Thank you. <clears throat> yes, Greg. Just the idea that, um, I mean, yes and amen, what great, rich, uh, you know, presentation, Mike, thank you, and the spiritual grafting in that happens through the Holy Spirit, such uh, amazing benefit, blessing that we're also thankful for. Um, and I just want to make the point that it's a vocational calling to participate with Christ um, in the deepest heart of God, which is the love that is in the Trinity, the, uh, which, is, which is most fully expressed uh, at the cross where Jesus said there's no greater love than a, a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's that self-emptying, canonic love that God is inviting us into as the Israel of God and, and that we're, we're, the, we're servants to, um, to the world and ultimately to the cosmos as God's image bearers. And I just wanted to, in Romans 8, 17, it says, uh, we are heirs, um, assuming we suffer with him. If we suffer with him, and then Paul goes on with the apostolic passage, that the point of it all is the love of God, but also our being our, our as the church, as, as Israel identifying with him in his nature, in his way, in God's way. Beautiful, thank you, Greg. Anyone else, just comments, thoughts? Yes, Mark? You may not want to do this yet, but you had said that our interactions with Muslims and our ability to witness to them is this, having this issue kind of worked out is key for our interaction with Muslims and loving them well. Can you speak a bit, bit about that? Well, I'll just say briefly, and this is where I'll probably tread on some toes here, but uh, in brief, the Muslim world sees Israel as the ultimate colonial project. It's the West foisting its will on the East and on the Muslim world. Uh, and they see more clearly than you would expect, they see very clearly that evangelical Christians are vested in the state of Israel. Uh, they see that from Israel and Israel's political leadership, and they see that from evangelical leadership statements. So it, what it amounts to is, in fact, Muslims read that and say, the gospel, the evangel that the evangelicals represent 
is a gospel of domination. It's a gospel of exploitation. It's a gospel of racial superiority. It's a gospel, it's an apartheid gospel. Now I know those are cutting, biting, hard words. They're not my words, really. They're, I'm just translating to you hundreds of conversations I've had in the Middle East. Uh, so when I say the Israel issue is a nexus that we have, it's a nexus of a problem in the Muslim world that we need to resolve. If we're going to witness as the people of the kingdom in that part of the world, we need to be clear about what we believe in terms of the identity of the people of God. So that's a, that's a synopsis view. A lot, lot more could be said on that question. Just to follow up his question, Mike, but how much does the Muslim world really care about the Palestinian people? Because I know I agree with everything you just said, but in practical reality, how much do they care? What? How much do they do for them? It's a good. It's a good question. I think they have a certain level of care for the Palestinians, and that they view them as part of the Ummah, the Islamic nation. So they feel that any intrusion or incursion or aggressive action against the Palestinian people is an action against the the Ummah, the nation of Islam. Uh, now, Muslim nations have been criticized. Neither Syria nor Lebanon has given citizenship to Palestinian refugees. So in Lebanon, Palestinians live in squalid conditions. It's horrible where they live. I mean, it's literally horrible. And they don't, they're stateless people. They have no benefits. They, they're not able to hold good jobs. They don't get the best education, even though they're quite bright people but they live as an oppressed minority. So Lebanon gets criticized for that. Why don't you do something for your Lebanese, for your Palestinian refugees? And their response is, if we give them citizenship, it alleviates the problem of the return to, to their land. They become citizens here, they don't return to their land in Palestine. So they have sort of political reasons that they don't appear to be helping the Palestinians. So um, Jordan, on the other hand, has given the Palestinian uh, refugees citizenship. So about half of the citizenship of Jordan is Palestinian in origin. So, uh, so you do have counterexamples to that as well. Other thoughts, other questions? I, I would like somebody to stand up and say, I just think you're out to lunch. I think you're coming. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure exactly how to phrase this other than um, for those of us who are ministering here and uh, particularly in contexts where there's maybe a uh, strong allegiance to this, uh, to like a Christian Zionism type of point of view, uh, to what extent should we as leaders of the church be uh, addressing the issue, talking with them, uh, and to what extent should we just focus on ministering together in the context where God has placed us. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. It does, and I, you know, my, the majority of my ministry life has been in that context, and yours probably isn't. But I, 
I'm coming to you as a brother from that context and saying it matters. It matters what American evangelicals are saying. So uh, I don't think you have to do what I've done here today. But when you're preaching through these texts, I, I would love for you to say, this means we don't support, as a, as a body of Christ, we're not about the establishment of a state. We don't believe a government has to exist in order for Christ to, to God, for God to fulfill his promises to his people. Just making those kinds of things explicit. Because I'm sure, I'm probably talking to the theologically trained people of our denomination, but I know for a fact that there are strong currents of Christian Zionism in our denomination. So um, I think we do need to be explicit about this at some level. I'm not saying, you know, do what I do here, but, but we run across these passages all the time in our preaching. So let's just make it explicit in our normal preaching and discipleship uh, roles. That's what I would advocate. And, and making, I would say also, making our churches aware that we have brothers and sisters in the Arab world who've been Christians since Pentecost. You know, for many, that's a shock because the media images are all Islamic and fundamentalist Islam. And I think unless we kind of rally around that church, the Middle East is going to continue to empty itself of Christians. And we're going to have more uh, expressions like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Hamas and Hezbollah. That's only going to proliferate if we vacate the Middle East of its Christians. Yes. Yeah, thank you for a great presentation. I mean, I completely agree that uh, the true Israel is continuous from the time of Abraham. The church has in no way replaced Israel. We've been grafted in. Uh, that Israel is spiritual in nature. That it has always been by faith, not by heredity or, or race or genetics. Uh, nevertheless, though, I think there's a very important like overlap with racial, ethnic Jewish people. Um, I call it an overlap, but so I, I get concerned, like when I hear uh, a suggestion somehow we uh, abandon, uh, renounce uh, the state of Israel. That to me would be really, really troubling. Um, I don't see the necessity of that state to fulfill God's promises, um, and yet God still, I think, has a plan and a purpose for. Not all of those people, but some of them. I mean, Paul says that in Romans. I think we're seeing that today. I think more Jewish people are coming to faith in Christ than ever before. It's quite exciting. Um, I know some of them that are in our church. But uh, anyway, so I, you know, when I hear like we should decry, you know, Christian Zionists and then somehow withdraw support for the nation of Israel, because I've talked to Palestinian. Uh, Israeli citizens, a journalist, and he says, this is the only place in the Middle East where I can speak and write freely my mind, and there won't be a knock in the middle of the door to arrest me or kill me. This is the only place in the Middle East I can do it. It's quite a unique place in the Middle East. So, um, anyway, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but just, uh, I sure hope we don't denounce withdraw support for the state of Israel uh, just because of these biblical beliefs we presented. Yeah. yeah. 
Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate that uh, perspective. Let me uh, just mention a book called Through My Enemy's Eyes, <clears throat> written by Salim Munayr, who's a Christian Palestinian, and Lisa Moden, who's a Messianic Christian. Uh, the, the book is eye-opening in terms of who is Israel and who are the Jewish people, you know, ethnically, as well as ideologically, as well as historically. And uh, it's, it's quite, it's quite uh, difficult to define the Jews ethnically because they were scattered around the world and they intermarried many, many other peoples. But there are some characteristics that define the Jewish people. And one is a longing for the land. One is a shared history from the Exodus to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Bar Kochba rebellion in 135 AD, and Masada. You know, these kinds of things, and the Holocaust, these kinds of things are identity uh, markers for the Jewish people, and they hold to them, and they define that people. So, I, I, and I, I think there is some family longing that we need to express to the Jewish people. So just let me recommend that book as a good resource for Christians. And Salim Munayr, the Palestinian Christian, has established a ministry called Musalaha, which is the Arabic word for reconciliation. And what he's doing is bringing Palestinians and Israelis together to bring about reconciliation. So I, I would submit that as the best way we can support Israel. And I don't, I don't personally, I appreciate your statement. Personally, I wouldn't advocate supporting the state of Israel. I would be a strong advocate of supporting the Jewish people who are broader than Israel, right? broader than the state of Israel. Uh, so, but I think if we can cease being uh, sort of advocates or proponents of a divisiveness in the nation, and if we can be people of reconciliation, blessed are the peacemakers, I think that's the best way we can offer our support. Uh, but unless we have a vision for that, unless we understand how that can be done, we'll be fruitless in doing it. Now, I want to give you a chance to respond. I'm, I'm affirming you, but sort of nuancing it a little bit differently. I would say support the Jewish people. I would be reluctant to support a state or a government. But feel free if you want to speak back to that. Uh, just a couple of things. I can't remember the French king once, historically, who said uh, to one of his counselors, give me an evidence that God exists. Give me a proof. And his counselor said, the Jews, sir, the Jews, that they are still intact ethnically, racially, as a people, uh, is astonishing that they have come back to the homeland that God gave them thousands of years ago and promised would be theirs forever. Now, I realize the promise is spiritual, but uh, I, I just see the hand of God in that. Um, Israel is surrounded. You know, it's made peace now with Egypt, praise God for that. Um, but tens of thousands of missiles are pointed at them. They're existential. The threat is daily to their survival. Um, the hostility, uh, 
Anyway, um, I've been there many times. Uh, I've talked to Arab Israelis, I've talked to Jewish Israelis, and uh, so I, I strongly support the existence of the State of Israel. I see no reason as a Christian not to do that. Um, it's the only democratic state in the Middle East. There is not a democracy in the Muslim world or anything close to it. So what, why would we abandon uh, people with whom, you know, our descendants of Abraham, um, the freedom-loving people. I mean, 4,000 missiles just rained on, down on them. They did respond. You could say it was asymmetrical, but they're in a battle for their existence. Um, so to support, I support the Jewish people, but not the state of Israel. I mean, many Muslim countries don't even have an Israel on their map. Their long-term goal is that it not exist and not, not be there. Where's the compromise position in that? I don't see one. So, anyway, these are deep, deep, uh, you know, yeah. gut-wrenching questions. And uh, all the attempts at peace over many, many decades, the offers that have been made, the bargaining and negotiating, not always in good faith. Anyhow, I've maybe said enough, but let someone else speak. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for speaking up. I appreciate that. We'll, we'll touch on some of those issues, hopefully, in the next section of the, of the seminar. Um, but I, I think I'll just let your comments stand. Thank you for that. Any other comments? Yes. Excuse me. Um, I was happy to hear that um, you don't subscribe to um, Replacement. Replacement theology, sorry. Yeah. Lost my train of thought there. Um, because I have heard from Messianic Jewish ministries and, and individuals that people that uh, believe in Reformed theology um, subscribe to Replacement theology. That seems to be a common belief among Messianic Jews. And I, I found that very troubling yeah. as a person from a Reformed denomination. So I was happy to hear that. Um, the other thing that um, I would just like to mention, my last trip to Israel was through an organization called One for Israel. Um, they operate the Israel College of the Bible. Uh, it's in Netanya, and they have um, Messianic Jews and Arab Christians working together there in, in that area throughout Israel. And it's, it's just a beautiful thing to see that. And also the Joshua Fund um, is uh, Joe Rosenberg, the author, is the, the CEO of that. And their um, desire is to bless Israel and her neighbors. So there's some, some uh, cooperation and working together that I think is encouraging. Okay, thank you. Other comments? Maybe take a couple more. Michael, I don't want to take away anything from your main point about the universal nature of the children of God. Mm -hmm. That it includes all who are born again in the Messiah, whether they're Jew or Gentile. But at the very beginning of your talk, 
you gave a definition of Christian Zionism. And if I remember correctly, it was the moral, uh, financial, and political support of the state of Israel. But I do think in order to understand Christian Zionism accurately, you should have added to moral, political, and financial the spiritual support of Israel. Because if you look particularly at the Old Testament prophecies about ethnic Israel, it is very clear that there will be a return to the land, initially in unbelief, but there will also be a point, as Paul articulates so clearly in Romans 9 to 12, where there will be a spiritual revival of those who have returned to the land and that they, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, there will be this, this God-driven fusion of a very large number of ethnic Israel with the wider Gentile Israel of God. And it appears from the biblical evidence to be a kind of apocalyptic, uh, maybe not a single event, but an apocalyptic process. And so I would agree with my colleague over there, who would, and, and I think I heard you accurately, that although we're dealing with, at the moment, a secular state, and a large number of Jews who have returned in unbelief, to me, the prophetic voice is very clear that that is not going to be a situation that will last indefinitely. So I think Christian Zionism that embraces that spiritual perspective doesn't necessarily approve of everything that's being done by the secular state of Israel, but sees the current state of a regathered, reborn Israel as part of a redemptive process. And that's why I think Christian Zionism has solid biblical ground under its feet. But my main concern, uh, particularly in what you said about your Arab friends and your Muslim friends, that they see the current state of Israel as a oppressive uh, colonialist endeavor. I think that's not only inaccurate from a biblical perspective, but for an evangelical reform Christian like myself, does that mean in order to be friends to the Muslim people and to be effective evangelists amongst Islamic people, particularly who lean towards that more radical view that you articulated, that we then have to echo death to Israel. In other words, does friendship towards the Islamic world inevitably pressure, and I choose that word carefully, does that mean it puts pressure on evangelicals to echo death to Israel. 
I think that's a very serious question about our applied um, desire to evangelize all the ethnic. Thank you for that, Kenneth. Very well stated, and uh, a very important point is, uh, does the scripture promise a return of the Jews to the land in unbelief, and then uh, the return of the, the bringing on in of the Jews, or the grafting in of the Jews? And that's a commonly held evangelical view, very commonly held, and one that I personally do not see in scripture. Uh, but, nevertheless, I think the point you're making and what you're asking is very legitimate. Do we sort of now have solidarity with the Muslims who, uh, from all appearances, seem to want death to Israel? And I hope you will know that my answer to that is absolutely not. That would be madness. Uh, and that, that would be a betrayal of the gospel. Why do we love Jewish people? I think we love them. Personally, I think we love them for the same reason we love Muslim people. And it's not because Jesus was a Jew or because Abraham was a Jew. It's because every single Jewish person was made in the image of God yeah. and is holy and needs to be treated, should be treated with dignity and respect. So I hope that we can have that same sort of love for the Jewish people. Uh, born out of our Christian faith. Um, let me just mention, I know it's common to say there are no democracies in the Middle East, there's no human rights in the Middle East, Israel is the only place. I, I've lived there a long time. And in places like Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Egypt, the Arabian Peninsula, there, there is a great deal of freedom. Uh, so I don't think there's the same it's not the same as Israel but just to remind us Israel is established as a Jewish state right it is not established to give democracy to all its people and Palestinian Christians will tell us they do not have full democracy there I'll have some more about that in, in the subsequent parts of the seminar. So I think what I'm doing is trying to not, uh, not to pull you towards solidarity with Arab people or with Muslim people in general, but I'm asking you to take a pause and try to see the Arab-Israeli conflict through the eyes of those who live behind the Great Dividing Wall, those who are under occupation in the West Bank, uh, those who, the 55% of the citizens of Gaza, Gaza who are refugees, where there is an unemployment rate into the upper 20s, where vocational opportunities and educational opportunities are severely limited by the occupation and where the oppressed are screaming help us help us for those people life under israeli rule is anything but democratic so 
I think I'm submitting to you that in our love for Israel and our fascination with this amazing thing that God appears to have done is to bring the Jews back to the land. It is fascinating. It, isn't, it is uh, wonderful. But in our fascination, let's not lose from our consideration the fact that Palestinian people, Muslims, Christians, and in fact, Palestinians will point out that many of them probably are ethnic descendants of the Jews. Right? They stayed in the land after the 135 AD. Some of them converted to Christianity. Many of them converted to Islam. Some Palestinians say, we're more ethnically Jews than the Europeans that are coming back to occupy our land. We're not allowed to return to our homes, and they're taking them over. That, that, that's serious, folks. That's serious injustice. And I'm just asking this, is there something here we need to consider? Is there a way for us to help Israel by making peace? And I'm all into helping Israel. I'm all into helping Israel. Uh, I'm not into supporting a state that is continuing an occupation for now 70 years with the approval of evangelicals by and large. I think it's a scandal. And we need to say it is a scandal. Not, not to do an about face and say, okay, now we hate the Jews. Now, bad, bad Israel, bad boy Israel. No. But to say, look, let's be people who make peace. Let's be makers of peace. I think, though, I really appreciate your guys' comments because you express in your comments the complexity of this issue. It is very complex. And uh, what I've presented has maybe oversimplified the issue to some degree. And uh, I think your guys, I, I really appreciate you speaking up. I think that's brought a new whole dimension to this seminar. So thank you. Uh, I want to just go quickly over a few, a few slides. It's now 10 till 4. So give me a 20, 25 minutes or so. And let's just look at the history of this land that we call Palestine, Israel. Uh, these, this is the history over, oh, how many years? From 2000 BC to almost the present day. And the areas surrounded by green are times when the land of Israel was under Jewish leadership, under Jewish dominance. Okay, there's a Hasmonean period there between the Testaments and from 1948 till today, but until that time, it was really just the United Kingdom and then the Southern Kingdom of Judah. Now, it's also, the land of Israel has been under Christian dominance uh, during the Byzantine era that, era, that was the New Rome, and also as a result of the Crusades. Uh, we won't go into the history of the Crusades, but it was a, in my estimation, it was pretty much an unqualified disaster for the gospel in the Middle East, and for the church generally. There was, it drove a wedge further between the Eastern and Western church. Now these periods of time is when the land was under Islamic rule. So actually, uh, if you add up the Jewish dominance, it would be about 600 years, a little more. If you add up the Christian time of leadership, it might be about 300 years. And the Muslim times, of when the Muslims were leading, uh, would probably come to about 1,300 years, and that being the more recent history until uh, 
1917, basically the end of World War One. So just to kind of keep that in mind, that that's how Muslims are looking at the ownership of the land. They're seeing it as they have the greater claim to the land. Now, am I affirming that? No, by no means. But I, I think for us to be unbiased listeners in the conversation, we have to at least hear their point of view. I would also point out the world's Jewish people about half of them are gathered in Israel today, which I agree is quite fascinating. It's, uh, you know, I would say it's miraculous. I, I kind of keep a high bar for that term. To me, it's also a disaster, not, not because of Israel. It's a disaster because of us. It's a disaster because the Jewish people had to return to their land because of pogroms that were exterminating them in Eastern and Western Europe. So it was all, you know, through the 1800s and before. So the, the, the pressure on the Jewish people built through the centuries until Zionism kind of came to life um, in, the, in the late 1800s. And then uh, the, basically the victors of the world wars awarded that land back to Israel, at least a portion of that land. So anyway, about half of the Jews of the world live in Israel, almost half live in the United States, by the way, which is also uh, quite interesting. Also point out that now, when I talk about Israel now, the state of Israel, I mean this part in the, the Manila part here, the yellow part, the green is Gaza and the West Bank. So these are designated Palestinian areas that are under Israeli occupation, all right? So that, <clears throat> that's as fair as I can say it. Yes, Jane? Is Gaza under? Gaza's not under Israeli occupation. Uh, absolutely it is, because Israel controls everything that goes in and out of Gaza. They control who comes in and who goes out. Uh, they control the food and these, the uh, utilities that are administered in Gaza. So it's a total occupation. Uh, not necessarily, if you think of occupation as the Israelis living there, all the Israelis have been pulled out, the settlements have been pulled out of Gaza, so they're not living there in that sense. But it's a, it's a political occupation of the land, a denial of sovereignty to the people of Gaza. Uh, but just to say that in this, in this yellow part, 21% of the residents are Palestinian. So that's a big minority in the state of Israel, right? But then when you look at the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, you come up with a figure, roughly, this whole land mass here, Israel and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, there's roughly a one-to-one -one ratio, roughly, all right? Uh, so this tells you something. If Israel is established as a state for Jewish people, can it be a democracy and a homeland for the Jews at the same time? When it has about 50% of its population that are Arab, uh, predominantly Muslims, most of the Palestinian Christians have immigrated, there's about 1.3% of Palestinians that are Christians. So this, these are the dynamics of the land right now. Uh, the Israel, and you can read the historic documents that well before 1948, they were aware of the Arab problem. And they knew that this, they needed to do something to deal with this issue. 
right? Let me just push ahead a little bit. Now, this is not, uh, if we start talking about the wars and conflicts in Israel, we'll be talking the rest of the day, but just to note that the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948, known by Israel, here's the linguistic difference, right? Known by Israel as the War of Independence, the establishment of the state, but called by Palestinians the Nekba, which is the disaster or the calamity, right? So the, the different language reflects the experience of these peoples. Uh, the result of that war was 750,000 displaced Palestinians. Uh, Israel, in the, in the UN agreement, Israel was to get 52% of the land. That was the establishment of the state of Israel. As a result of that establishment, five Arab nations attacked Israel. Israel won that war impressively, but as a result, they now controlled 77% of the land. So with each successive war, more Palestinians have been displaced, and Israel has taken more and more land. Uh, 350 Palestinian villages were destroyed. If you've not, uh, take the opportunity to read uh, Blood Brothers, written by Elias Shakur, uh, a Greek Orthodox priest who tells the story of his village and what happened in 1948. The 1967 war was the Six Day War, you know, so called by Israel to recall God's uh, establishing the earth. Israel established the land here. And in this war, they retook, they took Sinai, they took Gaza, they took the West Bank. They took the Golan Heights from Syria. They took East Jerusalem. And they also took the Sheba Farms from Lebanon, which I doubt many of you would be aware of. But because I lived in Lebanon, I'm aware of that. That also allowed or resulted in 350,000 more refugees uh, with no right of return. So these people have been displaced by warfare, but have not been allowed to return to their homes. So in 1948, there were 807 countable Palestinian villages. By 1967, that number was 433. If you've ever met an older Palestinian, they'll often have the keys of their house. And they'll be saying, I'm holding this. I'm going back to my home. Probably their home is long since destroyed. The Yom Kippur War of 1973, uh, was Egypt's uh, maneuver to try to retake the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt, maybe somewhat humorously, for those of us who's lived in Egypt, Egypt views it as their victory because they did get the Sinai Peninsula back, but uh, Egypt was defeated militarily because of American intelligence provided to the Israeli army. But it led to the Camp David Accords and Egypt was able to get the Sinai Peninsula back. Now, there are there's a string of conflicts. So my point is not to talk about the conflicts. My point is to say that with each one, Israel has taken more territory. And with each one, Palestinians have lost their land. So you want to know why we had this recent conflict in Israel? Well, there were six Palestinian families evicted from their home in the uh, Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood and they were evicted by Israeli settlers. Now, it, it, actually the eviction order hasn't been finalized yet, but when it became known that this was going to court, 
the whole thing erupted. And, um, you know, there was movement into the um, dome of the rock by Israeli forces. There were rockets shot from a Gaza Strip. There was this uh, hard uh, return fire from Israel. But it's, you notice that didn't happen when America moved its em embassy to Jerusalem, right? That wasn't the thing that sparked the war. It was the eviction of Palestinians from their homes in East Jerusalem, no less. Okay, so, so that has enormous uh, power for the Palestinian people to see more Palestinians losing their home. So they, they go immediately to war and to violence to stop that. I'm not justifying it. I'm just trying to say to you that is what, that's how it's perceived. So as we walk through these wars, the land of Palestine progressively diminishes. You see, even before 1946, Israel had purchased about 6% of the land. So even before the declaration of the UN, Israelis were returning to the land, purchasing it, and establishing their farms. And there were conflicts between the two. Uh, Israel had its own militias to protect the Israeli settlers returning. So it's not just an issue that began in 1948, it goes back to the early 1900s. So today, this is the situation you see uh, in Palestine, Israel, with these areas sort of uh, nominally under Palestinian control. There's a Palestinian police force that's uh, dilapidated and ill-funded, but basically Israel controls everything that goes on here in terms of water rights and services and roads and construction. Now if you um, look at, and I apologize that you can't see this very well, but there are blue triangles all through this West Bank. And those blue triangles are Israeli settlements. And it has been a policy of the Likud government, of Benjamin Netanyahu, to establish settlements all through the land. Uh, the black X's are gates to get in from the wall. Let me just see if I can show you some of this. Here's the wall that goes around the, the West Bank, keeping Palestinians in. Uh, this green line is actually the original uh, 1967 borders. So this wall is about 712 kilometers long. It's almost twice the length of the border. Why is it twice the length of the border? Because at places it makes gigantic cuts into the West Bank. These brown areas are under uh, Palestinian rule. But you will notice, if you look at the slides a little closer, they are not contiguous. None of them are separated. None of them, sorry, are united. So for a Palestinian who lives in Nablus to go to, down to Ramallah, he has to cross about five checkpoints. He has to have his papers in order. Uh, whereas the, the roads that serve the Israeli communities, the settlements, are these white lines and all of the Israeli-held territory is contiguous. And there's much more that could be said about that. 
Um, now I want to say that there are many Israeli grievances. Uh, they will say, for instance, the Palestinians were offered territory in 1948. They didn't take it then. And that's true. Because they owned 97% of the land and they weren't willing to accept that they would only own 48% of the land. So they didn't accept that deal. They felt it was uh, unjust. And the Hamas charter, I hope nothing I say here will be construed as a support of Hamas sort of anti-Israeli aggression. Uh, their charter calls for the liberation of all of Palestine from the Zionist enemy and it uh, promotes jihad, an Islamic share state of Palestine. So those grievances are real. Uh, and there are continual Arab-initiated attacks on Israelis and on Israel. That is a fact. There is insecurity in Israel because of what is taking place. So these are all Israeli grievances and uh, significant ones. And I personally, I want Israelis to live in peace and security. I want them to be free from attack and free from hostility from their Arab neighbors. I think that has to be. Uh, but I also want the Palestinians to live in peace and security. Uh, how to bring both of those about is a real problem. Now, I just want to walk you through a few of these Palestinian grievances. First of all, there are displaced people. That number of nearly a million or 1.2 million in 1948 has swollen to over 5 million today. These are displaced Palestinians, 1.6 million that are registered in camps. Now these are UN figures. I know some evangelicals don't like the use of UN figures. They don't consider the UN to be a legitimate organization. I don't know exactly why, but these are the figures I'm using. I'm trying to find some standard. And by the way, when you start researching these things, you find different statistics on both sides. It's very hard to get the statistics uh, to get dependable statistics. So the refugee problem and the refusal of the right to return. Now, why would Israel not allow the Palestinians return to return? Because if five million Palestinians return to Israel, it, it becomes, in effect, a majority Palestinian state, right? So the right of return is virtually impossible for Israel to accept, and it's virtually impossible for uh, the Palestinians to forego it, you know? So you're just getting into the nexus, the real complicated nature of this uh, situation. So no right of return. I've gone over some of this in the past, but to realize too that 38%, I think I uh, misquoted, misstated that earlier, but in West Bank and Gaza Strip, 38% of the people who live in those ter Palestinian territories, they're refugees. In other words, they were displaced from what is now the state of Israel. They've taken refuge in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and they're still waiting for the return to their homes. So this tells you, or at least I think you can maybe gain a little sympathy for why there is such violent reaction, all right? The 15% of the Syrian, of the Palestinian refugees in Syria and Lebanon have not been given citizenship.
Now, Israeli settlements in the West Bank, and I want to see here if I can play this link for you. Let's just see. Jason, I may call on you to help again. Oh, wow, look at Zoom that. Zoom into Bethlehem. Look at this section. This is the Bethlehem government. So, 1967, I was at that time five years old when Israel occupied uh, Bethlehem, and they have still some uh, childhood memories of that. Uh, this was the boundaries of Bethlehem at that time. So you had here East Jerusalem, you had here Hebron, the Green Line, and the Dead Sea. I'm sure many of you have floated on the Dead Sea, but I'm sure nobody knew that this is Bethlehem water because it's under Israeli control. But this is according to 1967 borders. It's Palestinian Bethlehem water. So look what happened to our city in the last uh, 50 uh, years. Uh, first, uh, Israel annexed the northern part of Bethlehem and declared it part of Jerusalem. So we lost uh, this part. Um, and then in the, la in the first 40 years or so, Israel built 19 settlements on Palestinian Bethlehem land. If we look where they were built, here to the north, Southwest. Why southwest? Because this is the most fertile area in the Bethlehem region. In the Bible, Bethlehem is called Ephrata. If you look, if you think of the book of Micah 5.2, uh, Ephrata means the fruitful. Because we have the mountain range coming from north to south, and rain comes from west, northwest, and so the rain stays on this side of the mountain. This is desert, this is lush. And then you have Jewish settlements along the Dead Sea. Why? Because they control tourism and they control the minerals of the sea. And then you have four settlements like here in the middle of nowhere. Why are they here? Because we have here the second largest water aquifer in the West Bank is located here. And we have archaeological sites, Herodion is located just here. And so these are not by chance uh, here. Now, this is exactly what, uh, what Netanyahu would annex if, if he will do what he just announced a month ago. He will annex all this area that you see here and all of this area that you see in, 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 uh, in, in uh, uh, blue. Um, and right now, this area uh, is called military zone, which means it's not only that the Palestinians have no control of it, it's not even allowed for us to be there. If I go there, they can put me to prison. Um, and this area of the Bethlehem region is called um, natural reserve. It, it's supposed to be a nature reserve for the Palestinians. Uh, they cannot do anything there, but it should be nature reserve which is great because we, we, we need reserve, but most probably these four Jewish settlements are meant to grow later as big as this. And then uh, Israel built two so-called bypass roads. These are roads that bypass Palestinian towns but connect Jewish settlements together. And in this case, actually, they have a different uh, function because we are not allowed anymore to build west of this road nor are we allowed to build east of this road. 
In fact, I'm not allowed to drive with my car, even this is Bethlehem, on this section of the road or on this section of the road. So there are two road systems in the West Bank, depending if you are Israeli, Jewish-Israeli, or if you are uh, Palestinian. More settlements, uh, they keep expanding. And then came the wall. This is the wall to the north. And you can see this is the wall to the west, built along the road. And this map is a bit old, so now there is a, a wall here, and there is a wall here. So ba basically, Bethlehem now is surrounded from three sides by this uh, ugly wall. Uh, and remember, this is from here to here is less than three kilometers. So the confined city, you can imagine how, how small that is. Uh, and so if you want to drive now within the city, you can be stuck uh, yesterday just driving from our university to our home, which is less than half a, half a kilometer. It took me like half an hour because, you know, we cannot build ring roads because everything uh, around Bethlehem is taken away. Uh, more uh, barriers, uh, more checkpoints. Uh, so, and this is the blue, if I go back, yeah, now you can see it, the blue. This was the projection of settlement expansion projected. And so you can see lots of settlement expansion here. But even more dangerous, can you see this set of settlements surrounding Bethlehem from the east? So basically, if you take the so-called area C, which uh, take, you know, uh, 66%, you add to that the 20% nature reserve, which, which we cannot do anything about it. 86% of Bethlehem government is not under our control. That's the reality. And as a theologian, I cannot just close my eyes and say hallelujah without looking at the reality. All right. Um, I might need some help to get back to my PowerPoint. But I, I, I want you to hear that. Now, to tell you who this is, here comes my help to get me back to my PowerPoint. Um, this is Mitri Raheb, who is a theologian. He's a president. He founded a university in uh, Bethlehem. He's also a Lutheran pastor. So um, I think when he speaks, he's not speaking out of bitterness or uh, revenge against Israel, but he's trying, he's, he's crying out, he's saying, look, our lives are becoming unbearable due to the occupation. Um, and some will say, for good reason, Israel is under attack by the Palestinians. And yeah, yes, that's true. Israel is under attack by the Palestinians. But this continual building of settlements, continual expansion of land, continually hemming in the Palestinian people uh, is, is part and parcel of the history, the recent history of Israel. And uh, I don't think, now you may correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we hear this side very often in our media or in our Christian media, certainly. So I just want to put it before you and say, Consider 
Uh, two points. I'm good friends with Stephen Curry, who pastors a Protestant evangelical Palestinian church in Bethlehem. I've been to his church and worshiped there with people from our church, but uh, are you aware, like, Bethlehem was once had a large Christian population. Yes. Since it's been under Palestinian control, the vast majority have been forced out. The injustice and oppression that they have suffered is horrendous at the hands of the Palestinians. I also, I know the guy that built the wall around the West Bank. I stood and looked at him. That wall was built because when there was no well wall, there was the intifada and an endless bloodbath against Israel. Bombings in buses, kids going to school, cafes, it was horrendous. And now that's largely been stopped, so I wish there didn't have to be a wall. But he, he stood there when there was no wall, and most of the wall is a fence with sensors, it's not a wall. But uh, it was built for a reason, that the people are not getting destroyed, stabbed, blown up daily. Um, so I, I just think we're hearing kind of a one-sided presentation here. Okay. There are two sides, really. Absolutely there are. I think, uh, if I could respond, and with, you know, with all respect and grace to our brother, I, I, I agree. The, the bloodletting and the violent, uh, violence that's expressed against Israel is deplorable. And I will be the first to acknowledge that. But at the same time, the exodus of Christians from Palestine has not happened because of, it's under Palestinian authority. It has happened since. It has been, the West Bank has been occupied by Israel. It's been a post-1967 exodus of Christians from Palestine. So we're, we're losing our salt and our light in those societies. And as a result, violence is increasing. I think people like Mitri Rahab, Mondar Isaac, Johanna Katanacho, they are our entry points. Uh, I don't know Stephen Huri, although I think I have uh, read some things by him. I think he responded to one of my articles, actually, that I wrote, but I can't be sure of that. Um, so I want the violence to go down, but I think there has to be a negotiated settlement. I think the Palestinian Authority and the nations of the world would accept the 1967 borders and we, there would be a two-state solution. I don't think it's ideal. But that solution is not acceptable now because of facts on the ground in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip as well. But, but that, those original borders, recognized by the UN as the legitimate borders of a future Palestinian state, are no longer even feasible. They're no longer tenable because of the settlement activity, because of the incursion of the wall, because of the building of the roads. So I'm, I'm agreeing with my brother. The violent response of the Palestinians is a reality. The bloodletting happens. The blowing up of uh, Israeli buses has happened. Why has it happened? Because Palestinians are absolutely desperate. So is there not a more sane way to bring about a peaceful solution to this uh, unending problem? I think I will, I think that's enough said.
but let's continue the conversation a bit if you're willing to stay. I had a few more slides and I was going to suggest a few areas for us to consider as Christians, but I think you're getting the drift and I don't want to drive it home too hard, but let's have some more conversation. I welcome those two who want to express the alternate opinion. You're, you're very welcome to express that. Mike, it's a short question, and I think it's not a long answer, but I think it's really important for people to hear. Can you describe just a little bit of what it looks like for a settlement to come about? What happens to the Palestinian people? How are they approached? How is their land taken away? Are they offered money? If they are, why don't they accept it, etc.? So, because I think I don't think we hear much about how a settlement happens. Do you know that, Mark? Would you like to share? Uh, no, not. Not, I mean, what our Palestinian friends have told us mm -hmm. is that they will come and they'll offer us money, but we won't take it. Mm -hmm. If we take it, it says that the land belongs to them, and we will never say that. Mm -hmm. Because we have had this land for generations. Yeah. These are our olive trees. These are our houses. And they'll say back to us, you guys who live in the U.S., how would you feel if an occupying army was there? And they took your house, they took your land, they took everything you have. So that's what they say to us. And, and I think that there are two sides to it. I agree with Peter. And, but we've stayed in Palestinian homes of both Christians and Muslims. And we've heard how they've been treated at checkpoints. And we've heard what they have lost. And, and it just grieves us because they equate that with Christianity. They, they put that, they put the aggressiveness of what the state of Israel has done to them with, with the U.S. Christians. And so, yeah, big problem, but yeah. Thanks, I, I can't really answer your question about what happens in the settlements objectively, but I have heard similar things. You know, they are offered money, they often refuse, there are certainly, you know, video clips online of Palestinian villages that are being bulldozed to make ways make way for Israeli settlements. So, so yeah, there is that bitterness and that vengefulness. And uh, if you've ever if you've ever known an Arab farmer, you know a person who's deeply attached to his land or his or her land. So this this is. Uh, the displacement from their land goes back generations, literally. And uh, it's their source of wealth, their olive groves, their place for grazing their cattle and what have you. So, so this, is, uh, this is trampled, they feel trampled underfoot by these things. Now, it, has Israel built settlements in Israel? Well, not nearly as many. So there seems to be a positive, there seems to be an intentional effort to flood the West Bank with Israeli settlements, to make the facts on the ground such that that land will never revert to Israel. Now, do we see that from the U.S.? I don't think we do. But Palestinians see it every single day of their lives. They live with that reality that that land will never come back to their families and to their people. And they will never hold they will never be dominant in their own land. They, it will never be their land. So that is causing, I think, or instigating some of this violence. And it is, it is, as we've heard, it is giving birth 
to uh, violent Islamic responses. Hamas was not in power in the Gaza Strip until uh, elections in the early 2000s. Now they've come to political power. The same thing can be said for the Hezbollah in Lebanon. They would not be uh, welcome in Lebanon were it not for the fact that Israel has twice um, invaded Lebanon all the way up to Beirut. Now they invaded because they, again, were attacked by Hezbollah. It was in response to Hezbollah that they invaded. But nevertheless, Hezbollah derives its legitimacy by the ongoing enmity with Israel. I think if we can wake up to that reality, that peace, peace, and a just peace has to be done if we are to see uh, these two peoples living in peace. And it, it won't help for us Christians to say, oh, those people over there will always be fighting. It's not true. Israel has peace accords with Jordan, Egypt, Qatar, with uh, uh, Bahrain, as I recall, several Arab nations. Some of those were accomplished by Donald Trump right at the end of his presidency. Regardless of what we think about him or don't, that's not the point. But nevertheless, there can be peace between Jews and Arabs. My Egyptian friends pointed out to me many times that Jewish communities lived in Egypt, and they always lived together peaceably. They tell me the conflict began with Zionism, with the assertion of political control over land they perceived to be Islamic land. I have a question. <clears throat> Sorry. And maybe it's already been asked, but I guess um, I just wonder what we should be doing as an evangelical church. Good question. She's smart, isn't she? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Something wrong with the TV. Well, I have a few suggestions. Uh, but one is that we need to listen to objective sources. And that's why I brought you three Arab Christians today. Because I don't, I don't think they're motivated by any of this vengefulness. I think they have a different motivation, which is justice. And I, I'm suggesting to us as Christians that we work in solidarity and with Messianic Jews, some Jews who are Jesus followers, as well as Palestinian Christians, the um, agency of Salim Munayir called Musalaha, or Reconciliation, is one example where we can be involved in the peacemaking between the two peoples. Uh, Palestinian Christians make up 1.3% of the population of Palestine, but they operate 33% of the non-governmental organizations, hospitals, clinics, and schools. So, as is, happens with Christians, their influence far outweighs their number. So by us showing solidarity uh, with Palis our Palestinian brothers and sisters, as well as our Israeli brothers and sisters, I think we can be a force for peace rather than throwing fuel on the conflict. Uh, so and I, I, I want to suggest as well that peacemaking is a legitimate form of Christian mission. We need to be thinking about how we can bring peace about in these conflict-ridden areas. I don't know how we will do church planting among Palestinians until there's some sort of a stable Palestinian state or 
homeland of some kind. So those are a few answers. She's my wife. <laughs> Other thoughts? We, we'll just carry on a few more minutes. I know some are needing to go. Um, so Mike, you seem to say that uh, I, the justice question is a hard one with, you know, nationalities and like we with, we think about the Uyghurs all the time, of course, and how, what is justice? But you seem to be saying that um, part of it would be returning to the uh, pre-1967 war uh, borders. Is that realistic or what? are there any, any practical justice uh, suggestions for what uh, you, you know, you, I know they're, we're going to disagree, but what, what, what you think would be, uh, would be reasonable justice, justice goals uh, politically? Well, I'd, I'd rather let the politicians speak to that, Greg, because I don't see a two-state solution happening. That's still the, the basis of negotiations, but with the realities of the West Bank, I don't know how it can happen. So I tend to see more of one state with a confederation of leadership of some kind. So uh, a Palestinian authority that uh, governs the Palestinian areas and an Israeli government that governs the state and sharing together in that state. Sharing the land I think is important. The Palestinians feel fenced out of the land. They feel displaced from the land. So I think these basic issues need to be addressed. But I don't have the political solution. I really don't, do not have it. It's the most complex situation in our world today. And there are plenty of complex situations. Any other thoughts or questions? Well, I'm looking out over you, and I feel like I've really left you with something heavy here. Yes. Oh, Steph has something else to say. Go ahead, Steph. Well, I, again, I don't know if this has been said, but isn't the... Isn't there a reconciliation education that takes place that churches can actually take their people to? I, yes. I can't remember. You mentioned it at the beginning of your yes. talk. Yes, Musalaha is a Christian ministry in the land. Uh, cro the cross. Christ at the checkpoint is the yearly conference. If any of you would be interested to go, they make a point to hear from both sides of the issue, but they do want the Palestinian Christian voice to be heard at this conference. Uh, I'd be very happy to uh, investigate it and take a group to the Christ at the Checkpoint Conference and we could also visit Israel at the same time. So if you're interested in going, just send me an email. Mike, sometimes they have them here in the U.S. Okay, okay, good to know. Any other thoughts? Well, I think I've left you with a lot of heaviness right now. Uh, there is, There are no perfect solutions to this, but there is our Lord Jesus Christ, who's the King, who's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and He is sovereign over this. And He can resolve it in such a way that Israelis are secure, cared for, have dignity, and Palestinians are also secure and cared for with dignity. But, one of the ancient uh, mothers of the church would say, Christ has no body on earth but you. He has no hands on earth but yours. He has no feet on earth but yours. Those hands and feet of Christ were pierced with nails. Right? 
So I think this situation, if we're serious about discipling the nations, we're going to get some shots. And we're going to involve ourselves, as the psalmist says, in issues that are far too great for us, far beyond our ability to understand. And yet I think there is a call for us as Christians to be involved in the peace-making movement in the Middle East. I think the Christ followers who are there are our gateway. So if you're up for a big challenge, if you're up for a big challenge, step into it. Step into it with the heart of the gospel, with the love and compassion for Israeli Jews, love and compassion for Palestinians, both Muslims and Christians. Let's uh, pray together. Father, we confess that this is beyond our abilities. It's beyond our understanding. It's a matter too great for us. And we call out to you, Lord, have mercy, have mercy on Israel, that ancient people that you chose and covenanted with. Bring them to yourself in Christ. And Father, we hold to the words of the apostle that if, uh, if their rejection or their transgression has been riches for the Gentiles, what will their inclusion be but life from death? So, Father, bring the gospel to the Jewish people. And then, Father, we pray for your mercy on the Palestinian people that are in Israel and Gaza and the West Bank and scattered throughout the Middle East and the world, really. Father, we ask you that the gospel will be preached, proclaimed, and understood despite a million obstacles to understanding that gospel because of what they have experienced. So, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.